Okay, tonight's topic, is this a sickness unto death? And the particular focus of Psalms uh, 91 that we're looking at this evening, there's, there's three particular texts. Uh, verse 5, you shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. And then verse 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And verse 16, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. I have a few pictures I want to show you of a place that is one of my favorite places on this planet. All right, so this is the Delicate Arch in Moab, Utah. An amazing feature that is there, remnants of the flood. This is what's called balanced rock. You'll see it when you drive through Arches National Park. It just perched up there on top. And uh, this is Landscape Arch. It is a magnificent arch that spans a long, long way. Um, and here's a view of the windows, a section of Arches Park with the LaSalle Mountains there in the background. Um, just a beautiful area. Here's the Colorado River winding along through the cliffs. And you can't really make it out, but the, um, the, the road that winds along the valley there, it goes up into Moab. You, you drive right along the Colorado River there as well. There's some other kind of fun roads to drive on there that will uh, make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's just an incredible playground with uh, vehicles like Rusty's Jeep. Uh, it's just a big Jeep playground. There are uh, all kinds of four-wheelers that you can take to go uh, zipping around. There are canyons to go hiking in. That was one of our favorite activities. We would go hiking in canyons. Here is a very narrow canyon. This is called a slot canyon. And it, it uh, kind of waves back and forth. They call it undulating, undulating back and forth. And uh, these, these can be very dangerous when uh, a flash flood occurs. A little bit of water will fill that up very quickly. Uh, this is a picture of, you can barely see my brother there in the background, Scott. We went on this, this canyon. We, it, it doesn't even have a name. It's just a canyon over in, in Blue John Canyon area. So we, we nicknamed it the Antelopish Canyon because it's similar to Antelope Canyon. Here's another picture of him a little bit further in. And you can see some of the, of the limes that are on this particular canyon. Beautiful. Um, and a lot of rock climbing, rappelling goes on here. Here's some other pictures of rappelling. And um, my story today has to do with uh, this general vicinity here. In fact, on the far end of this picture, way away on those cliffs on the other end is kind of where my story takes place. I worked at a little school here in this valley, and uh, one of the staff members decided he was going to take some students for a a hike. And they went up on the top of the cliffs that you see there. It's, it actually is like a just a big desert on the top. It's, I mean, it looks flat, but uh, it's very uh, undulating up and down as well. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of uh, trails and pinion pines and uh, jack pines. It's just an amazing place to go hiking. So he took some students. He went down the river, uh, river road a ways, and uh, he cut up through a section, was hiking across with the students, but he didn't realize how far it actually was from where he parked to, to make it back down to the school on the other side. And uh, the students were getting tired, they were getting hungry, they were getting thirsty, they didn't take enough food. And uh, some of the students started going one way and some started going another, which was unfortunate. 
Now, prior to this time, I had been working with some of the students and we had been going out um, into nature one day a week and, and we were part of a day and we would go uh, canyoneering and I taught them how to do rappelling. We started off in the school barn and, and they climbed on top of the hay bales and then they rappelled off of the hay bales. They learned how to do it on a low setting and then we started doing it in the canyons and in the cliffs and they would rappel down the cliffs and uh, they, they became pretty good at it. And a doctor, uh, Dr. Durson came to the campus and he started teaching high rope rescue, high angle rescue uh, to some of the staff and some of the students. We didn't know it then, but that training was gonna come into, um, into very much need on this particular day. As the staff member and students were walking along the top and getting tired and thirsty, they each decided to come down different ways. One particular young lady who was a, a Navajo young lady who had come up from Monument Valley area was with a group and she stumbled and fell on a very steep area and she rolled and tumbled and fell off a short cliff and uh, damaged her leg. She wasn't sure if it was broken. She was in a lot of pain. Between her and the bottom of the valley where the school was, was a series of cliffs that would was possible to navigate if you're walking, but certainly not with a potentially broken leg. And so I didn't know any of this was happening until a student showed up at my door that looked haggard and dirty. And they said, Mr. Anderson, uh, there is uh, some, you know, Eureka is over here on the cliff and uh, she's hurt her leg. We think it's broken and we need some help. So, um, I gathered the, um, some of the staff that knew how to handle ropes and some of the students and we went over there and we climbed the cliffs and it was a very difficult route to get up to her and we found her and she was in a lot of pain. So we splinted her leg and then we assessed what to do. It was getting dark and in fact by the time we got down it was completely dark. But it was at this time that we saw the training that we had put in place ahead of time came into place. We were able to make a plan we secured her between different individuals. We secured ropes all the way down and we lowered her from one cliff to the next until she reached the bottom. She was home safe that evening and it turns out she just had a sprain in her leg, but it could have been far worse. What enabled us to help her and get her down the cliff was preparation. Preparation before the crisis, a preparation that took time and effort and energy. But it was this preparation that enabled us to be of help when the crisis came. I want us to look at several biblical passages this evening about preparation. And the most significant passage that came to my mind as I was thinking about this evening is in Jesus' relation to the disciples about the end of time. Jesus had been in the temple. He had left it for the last time. He told them, your house has left you desolate. He, he and the disciples went down the steps and the disciples were marveling at them and they'd said to Jesus, look at these stones. And Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples were amazed at this. And when they arrived at the top of Mount Olives, they began to ask Jesus, when will these things be? What is the sign of your coming? And tell us about the end of the world. And so Jesus in Matthew 24 began to explain what the end of time would be like. After the end of Matthew 24, Jesus told a parable 
to emphasize the importance of preparation. So we're going to look at that parable together, and that is in Matthew chapter 25. We'll begin in verse 1. Can you see that picture there? Can you see Matthew 25? Yes. Okay. All right. Then the kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now this parable, as with other parables, has symbols, and we need to rightly understand what those symbols are. So first out, it talks about ten virgins. Now in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2, Jesus says, or Paul says, For I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the virgins that were represented here is God's church. This is a pure church. This is a pure church that is waiting and working for him. We see in Psalms 119.105 that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So these 10 virgins were, is, are a pure church that has God's word guiding it, and they're using God's word, sharing it in a dark place. So continuing, now five of them were wise and five were foolish. So at first appearance and first glance, there's not a real difference between the two of them. We don't see that they're wise and we don't see that they're foolish. We're just told that they are. And we see that later on in the parable. But initially on looking at these individuals, these five wise and five foolish, they look the same. From outward appearance, you cannot tell a difference between the wise and the foolish virgins. Uh, it has to do with something different. It has to do with their preparation for the crisis that was to come. Now, these that were foolish, we're told in the book Christ's Object Lessons referring to this, the Apostle Paul points out that, uh, that there will be a special characteristic of these foolish virgins that will happen in, in individuals just before Christ's second coming. And this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. In the last days, perilous times will come. Now, I would think we live in perilous times, certainly. And for men shall be lovers of their own selves. I mean, all kidding aside, when we go in the grocery store and there's no toilet paper, you got to say, <laughs> lovers of their own selves. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. What is described here by the Apostle Paul is those who have the form of godliness, but they don't have the power. And we'll see as we go through this parable, this is where the issue lies between the wise and the foolish virgins. So let's go back to Matthew 25. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels. Now, this oil, what is the oil that was to be in their vessels? And I, I see in my next slide here, either I've moved my scripture down or I failed to include it. But this oil here that's referred to, oh, I think I just didn't include it, is, is in Zechariah chapter 4. We're told that this oil represents the Holy Spirit. So the foolish had lamps with light burning, but they had no extra oil. It's the wise who had the oil. They had the oil of the Holy Spirit. Now in Zechariah, when he's describing this, this picture of two olive trees that are 
transmitting the, the oil from their trees into the lamps that is burning. Uh, it is this oil where um, Zechariah says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The only way to rightly understand the lamp of God's word is for the spirit to enlighten our minds. The only way for power to be exhibited in our lives is to have the spirit there in our life. So we have a distinguishing difference between the foolish and the wise. One, they are pure virgins. They believe a pure truth, but they have not experienced the, the converting power of the spirit and they haven't experienced the daily refreshing power of the spirit in their lives. Whereas the wise have done so and they have found the power of the spirit in their life daily. Let's continue on in Matthew 25. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Now, the timing of this is interesting. They were there for some time. Oh, I skipped the part. They slumbered and slept. I see that. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. There was this period of waiting. They, they believed in a wedding. They believed in the coming bridegroom, but they waited. And this waiting period caused them to slumber and sleep. Now, it wasn't an intention of the bridegroom that they slumber and sleep. He wanted them to be ready. And we'll see that at the end of this parable. But there was this cry that was given at the darkest point of the night. At midnight, the cry was given. Ellen White comments on this in Christ's Object Lessons. The coming of the bridegroom was at midnight, the darkest hour. So the coming of Christ will take place in the darkest period of, the, of this earth's history. Now, I would say it's pretty dark right now. There is, before um, this coronavirus came to place, came into place, there, was, there is so much tension in this world. You have North Korea, you have Syria, you have the politics in the United States, you have Brexit, you have Venezuela. You, I mean, it's just, it, just unending tension all over this world. Dark days. Continuing on here, the days of Noah and Lot pictured the condition of the world just before the coming of the Son of Man. The scriptures pointing forward to this time declare that Satan will work with all power and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. His working is plainly revealed by the rapid increasing darkness, the multitudinous errors, heresies, and delusions of these last days. Not only is Satan leading the world captive, but his deceptions are leading professed churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great apostasy will develop into darkness as deep as midnight, impenetrable, impenetrable as sackcloth of hair. To God's people, it will be a night of trial, a night of weeping, a night of persecution for the truth's sake. So we have a little glimpse of what's coming. But out of that night of darkness, God's light will shine. It is the darkness of mis misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be, to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known into the darkness of the world, is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. Now, we're going to dwell on that thought a little later, but it should be noted that at the time of darkness, God's people are to give a message. They are to give a message that will be a light to this world. It does not say that they will go into hiding in the, in the caves and no one knows that they're existing. 
All right, we're going to read on a little bit further here in Christ's object lessons. Then those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God, the last rays of mercy, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. So the very last message that God is having us give is a revelation of his character of love. Continue on in Matthew 25. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us of some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready with him went into the wedding, and the door was shut. There will come a moment when the possibility of moving into the kingdom of God will end. A door will become shut. And we're told afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And then the most solemn words in the entire Bible, but he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now these were virgins who were carrying lamps, but he did not know them. They had not partaken of the Holy Spirit they believed a pure truth, but their life was not changed by the power of God. Jesus gives this solemn warning. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So how are we to prepare to receive the Holy Spirit? What is the work that we are to do? What is the work that God is doing? This seems critical to understand. If we are to receive the Holy Spirit, and thereby gain entrance into heaven, or we don't receive the Holy Spirit and thereby come to a shut door, how do we receive this Holy Spirit? Well, in under, trying to understand this, we need to look at the sanctuary picture. The sanctuary helps us to more clearly understand God's plan of salvation and what he's doing in our lives. So Leviticus 16 and verse 16. So he, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. The work that Jesus is engaged in right now is his work in the heavenly sanctuary. He is working on the day of atonement. And we're told here that he is seeking to clean the day of it to clean the sanctuary because of the transgressions and sins of the children of Israel. Now, Leviticus 16 and verse 30 says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So it's clear from these texts that Jesus is doing everything possible in heaven to cleanse us from all sin. That's what he's doing, that's his purpose and his goal. Now, the investigative judgment in heaven examines the records. That's true. But this final work of God, this final work of Jesus, according to these texts, is to cleanse us that we may be clean from all our sins. When that door is shut, there's no more opportunity to be cleansed from sin. Once the work of the high priest is finished in the heavenly sanctuary, this day is done. So what then is our work? If God is seeking to cleanse us from sin on the day of atonement, the the um, the goat that was that was uh, the that had a lot drawn for it, its blood was shed to provide this cleansing. 
that's not something we can do. We can't, we can't shed our blood for our sin. Jesus shed his blood for our sin. So what, what is, is there a part that we're supposed to play on the Day of Atonement? Well, let's look at Leviticus 23, where it talks about the Day of Atonement, and it gives a little different insight. Now, I'm going to show you Leviticus 23, verses 27 through 32. I'm not going to read the entire thing, so it might look a little overwhelming when I put it up on the screen. Here it is. So there's a lot there. But I want you to notice that this is the Day of Atonement. Now, on the Day of Atonement, there's three particular things that the children of Israel are supposed to do. I'm going to highlight those here. You shall afflict your souls. Whoever does not afflict their soul on that day is to be cut off from their people. You shall afflict your soul. So three times in this passage, you'll notice that it's mentioned you are to afflict your soul. Now, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Now, if the Holy Spirit is convicting us of this, and we're asking God to help us see if there's any sin in our life, because that's a work of cleansing he's doing, then it seems that three times God is emphasizing the part that we are to work together with the Holy Spirit to examine our heart and see what is there in our life? What sin is there that we have not fully surrendered to him? Now, there's one other thing that mentions on the Day of Atonement that we are to do, and it mentions it three times as well. So I'm going to highlight that next. It says, you shall do no work. Whoever does any work on that day is to be cut off. You shall do no manner of work. Hmm. Now, this could have a number of meanings. This was a type or a symbol that those who live in the anti-typical Day of Atonement are to understand. And I think this has a, a number of applications that could be quite uh, valid in this case. One of them is, I would see here a picture of righteousness by faith. It isn't that they, through their own righteousness, are um, overcoming sin. It's they are trusting in the power of God, working through the Holy Spirit to cleanse them. Three times here, righteousness by faith is what the people at the end of time will be experiencing. In fact, we're told in Revelation multiple times that the end time people will be commandment-keeping people. It won't because they're doing this work on their own, but they have been empowered by the Spirit of God. You will do no work. I think it also has another application. At the end of time, the people of God, their focus will not be on building a career here. Their focus will not be on expanding their herds like Abraham. Their focus will be on giving the last message of warning to a dying world. You shall do no work. I, I find it interesting that for many, um, we're at home more than we've ever been before. Perhaps the Lord is helping us to understand that we don't always have to be out and about, but we can be engaged in his work. And he's giving us a little pause on, on life so that we can experience that. Now, I want to transition a little bit here to Revelation chapter 13. There is a battle that is going on there that we need to understand in preparation for the end times. So, um, I thought I had... Uh, well, we'll try this here. Oh, no. Okay. Now you'll see there's a number of texts up here, and each one of them has something within it that is going to be a central issue at the end of time. I'll show you the next slide. There will be a battle over worship. Now, what will be interesting at the end of time is that Jesus said, if possible, even the very elect would be, dece would be deceived. 
the revival in worship at the end of time will so closely parallel the false that it will be hard to, hard to distinguish which is the true and which is the false. How can you know what is the genuine revival that will happen at the end of time? We must be able to identify this. So let's go look at this a little bit further. Now, I'm going to read to you a little bit from the Great Controversy. There's a section called um, Modern Revivals. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit here. Popular revivals are too often carried by appeals to the imagination, by exciting the emotions, by gratifying the love for what is new and startling. Thus, converts, converts thus gained have little desire to listen to Bible truth, little interest in the testimony of prophets and apostles. Unless a religious service has something of a sensational character, it has no attraction for them. A message which appeals to the unimpassioned reason awakens no response. The plain warnings of God's word relating directly to their eternal interests are unheeded. Notwithstanding the wide declension of faith and piety, there are true followers of Christ in these churches. Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. At that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted love for God and his word. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept these great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's second coming. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work, and before the time of such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. In those churches, which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be great religious interest. Multitudes will exult that God is working marvelously for them when the work is that of another spirit. Under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. In many of the revivals that have occurred during the last half century, the same influences have been at work to a greater or less degree that will be manifested in the more extensive movements of the future. There is an emotional excitement, a mingling of the true with the false that is well adapted to mislead, yet none need be deceived. In the light of God's word, it is not difficult to determine the nature of these movements. Wherever men neglect the testimony of the Bible, turning away from those plain soul-testing truths which require self-denial and renunciating of the world, there we may be sure that God's blessing is not bestowed. And by the rule which Christ himself has given, you shall know them by their fruits. It is evident that these movements are not the work of the Spirit of God. Now we're told in Isaiah 8:20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. And Mrs. White goes on to talk about that a little bit in relation to revival and conversion. I'll read this to you here. It is the work of conversion and sanctification to reconcile men to God by bringing them into accord with the principles of his law. In the beginning, man was created in the image of God. He was perfect in, he was per, in perfect harmony with the, with the nature and the law of God. The principles of righteousness were written upon his heart, but sin alienated him from his maker. He no longer reflected the divine image. His heart was at war with the principles of God's law. 
but um, through the merits of Christ, he can be restored to harmony with his maker. His heart must be renewed by divine grace. He must have a new life from above. This change is the new birth, without which Jesus says he cannot see the kingdom of God. The difference between false revival and true revival is the law of God. There will be those who manifest excitement and emotion and are looking for some uh, next new thing. But unless that revival leads men to see their condition before God, to see the holiness of God's law of which they can never reach that standard without his forgiveness and his empowering life in theirs, uh, they will be mistaken. Now, what do we do when we see the, the um, perilous times that we live in? We see, what should this cause us to do when we see this coronavirus that's spreading everywhere, when we see wars happening on every hand? What should it cause us personally to do? Now, Jesus answered that question in Luke chapter 13. There was some that was, was talking with Jesus about some crisis, crises that, <laughs> that were happening in, in his time. And let's look at that together. There were present at that season some who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Jesus answered the unasked question that we have here. And Jesus answered them and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? So that's what they were thinking. They were wicked people because of this. Sometimes we look at the events around us and we say, well, the end of time is here. And we get so excited about that, but we forget to realize what should we be trying to understand when, when we see these events? God is allowing the winds of strife to blow a little bit. God is sending judgment. God has pulled back and Satan is doing something. We don't have a prophet to tell us, but we see these, these terrible things happening. What do we think about those events? Are we just excited about the second coming? Or what should it do to us in our heart? Let's look at this. Jesus, Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Jesus talks about a tower that fell and it killed 18 men. You see it here. And Jesus asks again, were these worse sinners than all who, others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When we see these significant events that are happening around us, it should, should cause us to pause, to reflect, am I truly repentant? Have I made everything right with Jesus? Is there anything between my soul and my Savior that I need to make right? Am I experiencing the power of the gospel? Have, has the Spirit come into my life? Do I just believe pure truths and am I part of a pure church? Or is God's Spirit motivating me and empowering me? And is my life experiencing the power of the gospel? Now, in Revelation 13, verse 4, we're told that there will be this war that happens. And there will be uh, this battle that causes all to seek to worship the beast. There will be a, as we study further, as we, you know, as studied at other times in Revelation 13, there will be a national Sunday law that will come into place. What are we to do in preparation for that? I received a text this week 
from someone that I had known in the past, a good friend of mine. And he said, I have discontinued my cell number, just letting you know, because the national Sunday law is going to be implemented soon. And he was going into um, self-imposed <laughs> digital isolation. What do we do when that happens? Um, I'm gonna look at a biblical story that causes me to think that maybe that's not the right answer at this time. There will be a time for us to flee to the mountains for sure, but is that, is that the time now? What would God have us to do? So in 1 Samuel 13, we're given the story of Saul who had just become king. He had been king for one year. And after two years, uh, he took 3,000 men of Israel and he kept 2,000 with himself at Michmash and he gave 1,000 to his son, Jonathan, who was at Gibeah. And then he sent the rest of these soldiers who had come help him fight away. They went back to their homes. Now, Jonathan raided a, a town and uh, the, the Philistines were not happy about this. And you'll see in the next verse what they do. Verse five, then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand, which is on the seashore in multitude. Now that's a pretty big army. Uh, when we have a look at Saul, at this moment, he has 3,000 soldiers. Incredible. So the very next verse tells us what the children of Israel began to do at this time. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. At a time of grave danger, when warriors should stand up, when they should use their swords, their armor, and their shields, they should go and fight for the Lord. They instead hid themselves. They were afraid. When we come to the end of time and the national Sunday law, um, or even before then, when there is threats made on a little group who stands for the word of God, what is our task to do? What do you think of these men that went and ran to the woods? Wasn't it the time for them to stand up and let God's word be heard? Seems that would be the case to me. Um, we're inspired by people like Jonathan. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. We're inspired by these two men that climbed up a cliff and fought an army, just two men, because the Lord can save by many or by few. What do we do at the darkest hour of earth's history? Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that we are to give a cry, behold, the bridegroom cometh. What do you think about a ship that's sinking at sea and the captain gets off himself into a, a boat and pushes away and leaves everyone on the ship that's there, saving himself, self-preservation. This is out of harmony with what we consider to be noble and heroic. At the end of time, God is calling for people to be like Jesus, to let their light shine in a dark world. As we see the end approaching, we shouldn't run immediately to the hills until it's the right time. Until that time comes, we need to lift up our voice like a trumpet. God has given us a message that needs to go to the entire world. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, we're given a picture of strife that is trying to blow upon the world. 
and a cry is given. Let's look at it here. And of these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth, the sea, and saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of, God, of our God on their forehead. God wants to seal as many as possible. So at a time when strife is trying to blow, when we see crisis on every hand, when the earth is at the darkest point of its history, a message is given that God is trying to seal as many as possible. Ellen White has a comment on this in Review and Herald. This points out, she's referring to that very text. She says, this points out the work we now have to do, which is to cry to God for the angels to hold the four winds until missionaries shall be sent to all parts of the world and shall have proclaimed the warning against disobeying the law of Jehovah. What is the work God's people are to do? Well, number one, they're to afflict their souls. They are not to focus on their businesses. They're to focus on experiencing the righteousness of Christ. They are to allow the Holy Spirit to transform their lives, and they are to send missionaries to all parts of the world. What is our job? To send missionaries. At the darkest moment of Earth's history, this is what we are to do. Now, there are things happening behind the scenes that we're not aware of. We might get a glimmer of it here or there. Rumblings might come out. Because of our prophetic insight, we might read into things and, and see behind the scenes. But we have this little prophetic insight I'd like to share with you. The Sunday movement is now making its way in darkness. The, the leaders are concealing the true issue. And many who, who unite in the movement do not themselves see whither the undercurrent is tending. They are working in blindness. They do not see that if a Protestant government sacrifices the principles that have made them a free, independent nation, and through legislation, bring into the Constitution principles that will propagate papal falsehoods and papal delusions, they are plunging into the Roman horrors of the Dark Ages. This is happening behind the scenes. And though, even those that are engaged in it don't really realize where they're headed because there is a great conspirator that's leading them. So what is our engagement with this? Do we just sit back and watch what's happening? No. It is our duty to do all in our power to avert the threatened danger. A vast responsibility is devolving upon men and women of prayer throughout the land to petition that God may sweep back this cloud of evil and give a few more years of grace to work for the master. As we see the earth at a point in history that we have never seen before, we should be praying that God will give us a few more years, that we can send missionaries to the uttermost parts of the earth, that they might have the sealing message and be saved. In fact, we're told there are many who are at ease, who are, as it were, asleep. They say, if the prophecy has foretold the enforcement of Sunday observance, the law will surely be enacted. And having come to this conclusion, they sit down in a calm expectation of the event, comforting themselves with the thought that God will protect his people in the day of trouble. But God will not save us if we make no effort to do the work he has committed to our charge. As faithful watchmen, you should see the sword coming and give the warning that men and women may not pursue a course through ignorance that they would avoid if they knew the truth. Solemn words. In fact, I'm reminded of a text in Ezekiel. Pardon me while I turn there. 
Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17. I have made you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. If we have been given a warning message, then this passage would apply to us. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him not the warning, nor speak to warn him, the wicked, from his wicked way, to save his life, the same wicked man will die in his iniquity, but as blood will I require at your hand. That's a pretty solemn thing. So when we reflect here, we shouldn't be sitting at ease thinking, well, what's going to come is going to come, and oh well, uh, I can't wait till the second coming. No, no, if that's our position, then the door will be shut and we'll be told, I don't know you. All right, so um, we've described then the time of the end, and I just uh, want to share this here with you. From the time, from time to time, the Lord has made known His work, His manner of working. He is mindful of what is passing upon the earth, and when a crisis has come, He has revealed Himself and has interposed to hinder the working of Satan's plans. He has often permitted matters with nations, with families, and with individuals to come to a crisis that his interference might become marked. I would say we're at a crisis. And I think God has allowed this moment so that his interference would be clear. Then he has let the fact be known that there was a God in Israel who would sustain and vindicate his people. When the defiance of the law of Jehovah shall be almost universal. I think we're pretty close to that day. When his people shall be pressed in affliction by their fellow men, God will interpose. The fervent prayers of his people will be answered, for he loves to have his people seek him with all their heart and depend upon him as their deliverer. When the power invested in kings is allied to goodness, it is because one in responsibility is under divine dictation. When power is allied with wickedness, it is allied to satanic agencies, and it will work to destroy those who are the Lord's property. The Protestant world has set up an idol, Sabbath, in place where God's Sabbath should be, and they are treading in the footsteps of the papacy. For this reason, I see the necessity of the people of God moving out of the cities into retired country places. Now, this was penned in 1897. If ever there was a time where we should find some place in the country, uh, it doesn't have to be that far from the city, but out in the country where you have a little space to grow a garden, uh, what a blessing it would be. Thus, they may bring up their children with simple, healthful habits. I see the necessity of making haste to get all things ready for the crisis. Now, this same author challenges us to live in the country, but she has a burden that the cities are worked. So that sets up what should happen. There will be Christians living in the country and working in the city. I know that kind of pictures a commuter church, but that is what must need be. Uh, continuing, I could not sleep past two o'clock this morning. During the night season, I was in council. I was pleading with some families to avail themselves of God's appointed means and get away from the cities to save their children. Some were loitering, making no determined efforts. So I included this quote here. I know some of you live in the country and some of you like to live in the country, but um, it seems an appropriate time to reflect on the council that we have. That if we've been given counsel like this, then, then there will be a blessing for, for this. Uh, now, some, not everyone is able to make it there, I understand, but uh, it's, it's a blessing if you're able to. Last day event says, soon there is to be trouble all over the world. It becomes everyone to seek to know God. We have no time to delay. 
So as I was part of this story, helping Eureka make it down off of the cliff, I reflected on that experience. It was only as the training was in place prior to the crisis that we were able to offer help to someone in distress. It is only that we have preparation now as we face the in crisis that we'll be able to help those who are struggling for life itself. God wants to seal as many as possible. The devil wants to destroy as many as possible. And he has called you up. He has raised this church up for a reason and a purpose. Our theme this week has been preparing for the crisis. And I hope tonight, as you reflect on how you can, how you can prepare for the crisis that's ahead, there'll be a few things that are highlighted in your mind. Number one, the need of preparing by having the oil of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you're not experiencing the power of Jesus in your life every day, to guard your tongue, to guide your actions, to give you peace, to be your all in all, I would challenge you to think and pray and earnestly seek God for the power of his Holy Spirit, that your life will be brought in accordance completely with his word. As you reflect on preparing for the end of time, there is the work that Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary, working with all power to cleanse his people from sin. What do we have to do? We have to afflict our soul. We need to examine our heart. We need to be honest with ourselves. Lord, help me to see what in my life I need to surrender to you. We need to experience the righteousness of God, not through our own efforts, but in cooperation with God by faith, experiencing his power to help us to live out his law in our life. As you reflect on these times, may your career, your work, uh, paying for retirement, all these things be secondary and may God's work be primary. And as the crisis is right, up, right upon us, let us not think about quickly fleeing to the hills. There will come a time for that. But God has given us this time, these moments to lift up his message to a dying world. Help us to be more aggressive than ever in giving this final message to the world. I can't help but think that this time is causing us to be more effective with our use of the internet and finding ways and means to share God's word in ways that we haven't before. It's caused us to press into it with an aggressiveness that we haven't before. So I just would encourage you to find ways and means in your own life and that we can work together in uplifting God's messages here in these last times. Let's close together with prayer. Father in heaven, as we have reflected on preparing, we've reflected on our need, we've reflected on the darkness that is not only in the world now, but that is to grow greater as the nearness of your coming grows sooner. Lord, help us to be ready for that time. May we find the power of the Spirit to transform our lives. May your Spirit not leave us at rest. May there be no peace in our life until our life is fully and completely surrendered to you and empowered by your Holy Spirit. Draw us together as a church. May the divisions that, that exist, may those be put away. May the sweet love and Spirit of Jesus abide in our church, in our heart, and in our homes. Bless us, Lord. We're encouraged as we're told that none need be deceived. But we have this good counsel. Help us to apply it and live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.